Another World Economic Forum annual meeting has come and gone. In Davos, over 3,000 global investors, business leaders, academics and heads of state grappling with issues around artificial intelligence, geopolitical risk, anemic economic growth and climate change. But was it just a talk shop or was any real progress made on key issues affecting humanity in 2024? And what does all of this mean for our little corner of the world? Hello, I'm Jeremy Maggs, and this is the first episode of No Ordinary Wednesday for 2024. It's the program that offers an in-depth look at what is driving markets, shaping economies, and changing the game. There's a lot to discuss on the back of the Davos meeting, and to do exactly that, I'm joined by Investec Bank South Africa Chief Executive Richard Wainwright and Investec Group Finance Director Nishlan Samuj, who were at the WF in Switzerland and are here to share their insights. To both of you gentlemen, a very warm welcome to No Ordinary Wednesday. So, Richard, let's start with you if we can. The theme in Davos this year was rebuilding trust, which is not surprising given the current volatility in the world. So my question to you is twofold. Where do you think that trust deficit is and why have citizens lost trust in leaders both political and in the business space. I think the trust element that was the purpose of the of the theme at Davos is between nations and between countries, and that uh, largely arising through two factors. I think one being geopolitics, you know, global conflicts that are happening around the world that we see and we all know of, whether it be in the Middle East or Ukraine, and then the the rebalancing of supply chains. So I think coming out of the pandemic. You've had many global companies start talking about onshoring, friendshoring, nearshoring. This has led to tensions, so a lot of mistrust between nations, I would say. You, know, you referred to the citizens. Have citizens lost faith or trust in leaders? I mean, some of the surveys that I've been told about shows certainly they've lost faith and trust in their political leaders, and yet they are looking often to their companies or their companies' leaders to give them trust back or give them direction or give them hope. So it's been quite a shift dynamically, both for nations and citizens. Let's talk about rebuilding trust in just a moment. But when you were there and you were talking to people and engaging, did you sense despondency or is there any modicum of optimism at all? Look, I think there's, first of all, it's very good that there's a recognition between political leaders that there is this underlying mistrust. And at least Davos, for one thing, can do is get people in the same room talking across both the political divide, economic divide, and start recognizing one that it needs to be rebuilt. And that's half the battle that's one. That's half the it? battle mm. one. And are prepared and sit and talk about their differences, whether it's economic, ideological, or political. So that, to me, is a good thing. So that gives you a little bit of hope. So the mere fact that people are talking and recognizing that things need to change and be done is positive in itself. Nishla, I'm going to get to you in just a moment, but let's just thread that through to its conclusion if we can. How then does leadership politically, but again, perhaps more uh, importantly in your space, the business space, start to rebuild that trust quotient? Is there a, is there a jump off point here? Look, I think one, if one looks at the role of leaders, particularly business leaders is, and, and some political leaders, your, your role, your primary role is to give people hope and the hope for a better future for yourself and your family and your children. So I think even when you speak, when you hear people talk across the various nations, whether it's China or America or Europe, or from the developing world, other parts, that's what people talk about. My sense is coming out of Davos, we're still not getting back to pre-pandemic growth rates. 
as the world, and Nishan can talk more about it, is as the world is rewiring itself, as some people are saying. And so you're going to have a little bit of volatility for some time. But from an interest rate point of view, the recessions that people have been worried about, I think that may be behind us. The sense is the world will have a soft landing and we are at the peak of interest rates. So that offers hope. I'm looking at Nishlan's face and it's inscrutable. I'm not, I'm not seeing what, uh, what you're thinking here. So it's a nice segue there, Richard. Let's look at geopolitics if we can. How worried should we be then about the escalating tensions that Richard has referred to and the impact on the global economy that is still reeling from inflationary pressures, although there is a sense that that might be easing slightly? Yeah, and I think that last point is quite key, is, you know, the, to some degree, 24 does feel better than 2023. I think geopolitics, obviously, the tensions in the Middle East, Ukraine, that's still got a road. It's very sensitive. The risk to the spread of conflict around the world. But you can see that global leaders are trying to manage it. What was encouraging was really the relationship between the U.S. and China and the fact that those two superpowers are talking to each other. You know, there's been some real action and some real contribution on both sides. And I think at the end of the day, the U.S.'s involvement in trying to find a solution for the Middle East, which includes Palestine, is quite key. So I do think that the, you know, the world's trying to find a way out of this. And you can also see that some of the key risks have been actively managed, particularly around trade and, and flow. Amplify that statement for me a little bit further. You talk about countries trying to manage it. Apart from the dialogue that Richard referred to, what else is happening in order to unlock that? Well, I think the first is conversation. You know, if I talk uh, a little bit deeper about the U.S. and China, you know, there was a meeting of Biden uh, and, and the Chinese president in November, which I think was a very, very key step to unlock conversation. And, you know, interestingly, I think it was Blinken that uh, identified a key risk in America is actually fentanyl. The U.S. Secretary of State, yeah. Yeah. And the fact that China has taken, you know, key steps to manage that risk, uh, has taken steps against corporates that are providing input to the manufacture of these drugs, there's real steps on the ground. I think if you look at the active nature of conversations around the Middle East, you know, I think South Africa has obviously taken a particular position. But if you look at around the world, there's really an, an effort to continue on the path of finding a solution that includes the Middle East. Saudi, for example, has reconfirmed its commitment, which includes uh, Israel in that commitment. So these, these are key things that are at play. So Nishan, against that ob backdrop of that observation then, what's the feeling, what's the general direction when it comes to inflation and interest rates this year? Or is it too early to call? Well, I, I do think that, that interest rates will start coming down. Uh, I think the thing that we've got to caution is the time for free money is long gone. So higher interest rates will continue to, to persist. I think inflation, you know, whilst we've seen moderation around the world and expect to continue to see moderation, there are still risks, you know, just things like supply chain and so forth and so on. So as those risks, uh, you know, continue to play out and, and continue to be managed, hopefully we lie on the right side of that equation. But I would say that uh, 2024 is a year in which we should see some relief uh, with regard to interest rates. Now, that's probably going to be a bit later than most expect, and it's probably going to be not to the lower levels that most would have expected a while back. So listening to the two of you, I'm sensing a little bit of optimism here. Not entirely sure if it's just because you've both had a good holiday, uh, <laughs> but let's move on nonetheless. So, Richard, back to you. 
taking uh, what Nishlan has said and your broader observations, where does this stand in terms of global growth? So the World Economic Forum, I think, forecasting a recovery of around three, three and a half percent. I think I'm right. Yeah, that's about right. Look, it's still not at the growth rates of pre-pandemic. The big emerging economy maybe that's come really well out of the pandemic is India. You know, China is very much domestically focused now. You're not going to see China going back to the 6, 7, 8%. It's probably consolidating at the 4 to 5. India is the massive growth engine, and that's got a lot of sustainability in it. Um, and then the big one is obviously the US and how it cannot get beyond 2, 2.5%. That's the baseline at the moment. So I think that the th around 3% global growth is probably okay, but there, there is risk to that. You know, what Nishan was talking about, the stickiness of this inflation or the volatility of inflation as conflicts get out of control, you're going to have that. And then what you've seen very recently in the Red Sea with the Houthi conflict, you know, there's a lot of goods that are going through the Suez Canal. If those reroute, the effect on those goods, and I'm not sure what percentage of global trade it is, but it's not immaterial, is 30%, up to 30%. And most of those goods are going into Europe. So there's downside risk to this inflation. 50% of global trade goes through the Taiwanese Strait. You know, any upset to that is... Not that we think that there's going to be anything upsetting it. So, and this, this, this rebalancing of supply chains, whilst we spoke about it last year, we're a long way from concluding that. You know, we, we heard a number of people, global leaders, corporate leaders, talking about how difficult it is to onshore, nearshore, friendshore. You don't do that in, in one year. And all of it is going to cost more because you're relocating away from China, which is, you know, is a low-cost jurisdiction. So, Richard, add to that... The fact that over 50 countries this year, it's astonishing, 50 countries this year uh, are going to the polls, obviously including South Africa, and that would present a degree of uncertainty, not only here, but around the world. I'm sure you agree. So people that you spoke to at Davos, what are the icebergs that they're worried about? The big one is the U.S. Uh, I think Nishan will agree with me. The general sense that we got speaking to people out of the U.S. is that Donald Trump has a very real possibility, if he gets the nomination and, he, and, it, and we get to November, that he could win. Now, you know, given what he did when he was the president before and his foreign affairs policies, that can create a lot of volatility. That's definitely an iceberg that people would, that, you know, global investors, global corporates would see, you know, out, outside of um, conflicts. I think uh, the rest of the world, you're probably going to go slightly left in the UK, more than likely, which I think will be a softish landing, my sense. I think the, the Labour Party has moved under advice to very much in the centre, and it's probably, you know, a fairly good bet to say they're going to win. And back home, the potential of coalition politics, which uh, are fractious by nature, and we don't, uh, we don't have a good track record, certainly at provincial or or municipal level? Difficult to forecast. Is it going to be, you know, close to 50? My sense would be it would be pretty close to 50 and we'll get some form of coalitions. Nothing major, I don't think. But that in itself is uncertain for us until we have the outcome of that. Any form of uncertainty is, is not good for long-term investment, as you know. So the mere fact that we're all going through this, or well, 50% of the world's population is going to be doing this, does create an element of uncertainty. So using that thought, Nishlan, then, and against this backdrop of uncertainty, and I think in the last couple of minutes we've used that word about five or six times, where does the opportunity lie for investors this year, question one, and two, are emerging markets likely to be back in, in fashion? 
Well, Jeremy, you asked me to bring up my crystal ball. <laughs> I, th- I think at the end of the day... Get it out. I'll give it a polish if you want very quickly. <laughs> um, you know, at the end of the day, I think investors got to continuously assess risk. The world is quite dynamic. Um, I think diversification is important, particularly for a South African client and our private clients in particular, you know, understanding that there is a global playing field um, and taking opportunity around that. I think obviously the uh, climate change factors will continue to drive and, and there, therein lies opportunity. Uh, but at the end of the day, just be mindful of the landscape. Uh, 2024, as we've indicated, there's a lot of change in the world. It continues to be rewiring. And that needs to be factored into any portfolio. In just a moment, we're going to talk about the impact of artificial intelligence and the South African delegation in Davos. As I say, we'll continue the conversation momentarily, but I would like to remind you that a new episode of No Ordinary Wednesday drops every fortnight. Please don't miss it. Subscribe to Investec Focus Radio SA wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the channel, please take a moment to rate us. So, Nishlan, back to you then. The impact of artificial intelligence on jobs, a hot topic at this year's conference. Added to this are fears that AI could stoke misinformation in an election year. We were talking about that just a moment or two ago. Any specific insights on that front that you picked up that you can share? Yeah, I think the the greatest insight is uh, just a a snippet from the uh, Microsoft CEO, Satya, you know, indicating that the the biggest change is really the fact that you you natural language processing. Now, what that means is you and I can speak into a computer and it will process the difficult programming behind it. So I think the big change with AI is what do I ask of you next? And I think that that change will continue to embed itself. The drive at uh, at the conference was that the real gain from AI is an increase in productivity. Um, and, and if you use it properly, uh, the story is not about the, the, the loss of jobs. I think there is going to be a need to almost re-engineer the way we approach work. And if you break it down into tasks, I think a lot of the predictive AI has dealt with automating tasks that are high frequency, not a lot of uh, change in, in, in processing. But generative AI means that you bring in a partner alongside every human. And I think that does have an impact on the way we think, the way we approach things. So use properly, uh, productivity is really the benefit. I'm glad you use the phrase use properly because the caveat, of course, is one, dangerous misinformation and two, Simple mistakes. Yeah, and I think that's the key thing. You know, if you're going to generate an AR report, it's it's important best you know uh, what's in it. It kind of helps, doesn't it? Yeah. It helps. And I think at the end of the day, the risk of misinformation, particularly around an elective period, the misuse risk is, is high. So we do look to the providers to introduce ways and techniques. I think, again, uh, there are some countries that have thought deeper into this, such as Singapore, Denmark, and to some extent, the US as well. So there are learnings from, uh, you know, the developments that are taking place around us. Richard, probably the big question, there was some concern about the sparseness of the South African numbers at Davos this year. Um, How convincing is the story for South Africa in terms of us being an investment destination? What was the tone? What was the kind of cadence in that respect? Look, I think we had a reasonable delegation. There were there were five ministers, if I'm not mistaken, and, and uh, some of their support. And our governor of the central bank, who's always a, you know, a hero at uh, Davos, and a number of business leaders. 
The South African story is difficult right now, you know, given all the global context that we've spoken about. We know about our structural reforms. So South Africa is well known. You know, most global investors and corporates understand our story and understand our history. And, sure. you know, I think it's fair to say now that the, the Mandela halo effect is long gone. You know, the realities of our situation has, has factored in. And uh, our challenges around infrastructure, policy certainty, the ideology that we have towards the economy, free markets, et cetera, are big challenges. We know, we know what those are and we can't hide away from them. The positive is what the president's trying to do around it. We've got three dedicated work streams, which is the government engaging with the private sector to deal with those three challenges. If I can remind the listeners, it's, it's energy, logistics and transport and crime and corruption. And I think we're getting a reasonable amount of feedback from those forums, but that's time for delivery. And until we get business confidence improving domestically and we start seeing South African investors, you know, corporate South Africa start to invest in uh, new capacity, we won't get the international investment. And understandably, there is still a reticence here. Definitely, on, on it locally. I think one of the things that surprised me to the upside was the Africa Free Trade Agreement which is starting to get a lot of acknowledgement internationally, particularly from global companies. There were, I attended a, a breakfast where there were about six, other, six African leaders who were there. A secretariat has been set up. There's a lot of work that needs to be done so that we can encourage more free intercontinental trade. There's been an action plan that's been released by that secretariat, which has been private sector driven. And a concept endorsed by over 40 countries. Yeah, and, and very specific areas that need to be focused on. Uh, to give listeners one example would be the pharmaceutical industry. It's all good and well to say, okay, we're going to build pharmaceutical plants here in South Africa or in Kenya. Can we distribute it freely in compliance with all regulations across the continent, right? So is there an alignment of regulations? Now, that's obviously easier said than done, but at least there's a recognition across African leaders that in those kind of instances, we need to start working on that. Common payment platforms, massive task so that we can start getting easier payments across domestic currencies, different currencies across African countries. So I was quite pleased with the progress that's been made there and, and a very specific set of tasks that need to be worked on. But you'll agree that harnessing the potential to make sure that there is implementation is going to take time. Yeah. The argument, of course, would be that we don't have that time, particularly in this country. So how do how do we make this quicker? Look, I think African leaders need need to get around the table and deal with some of these issues, which I think they are. The other important factor, and that, and this is one of the biggest constraints to this, in order to achieve growth in any country, you need investment. Now, typically at times like this, you would expect the government to lead that kind of investment. Across Africa, governments do not have fiscal space. You know. Quite a number of African countries have defaulted on their debt. Ethiopia last week. We all know South Africa's debt to GDP challenges. So there is a very real recognition that in order to spur that growth and to get the investment, it's got to come from private capital and or multilateral development banks like the World Bank and other private investors. We need that. Before I start wrapping up the conversation, Nishan, I'm sure you would agree with that sentiment as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. And the speed, the speed is of the key and investors are looking for that and obviously minimized risk. A hundred percent. And I mean, you know, at the end of the day, South Africa is like many jurisdictions is in an elective period. I think we can become very inward looking. We've clearly pointed at the key risks in South Africa and we've identified a path to, to work into those. That needs pinpointed effort.
So final question to both of you. A couple of key takeaways from this year. What is sticking with you? At the end of the day, I think conversation and, and really dealing with challenges. I think AI can be a friend of tomorrow. It's really up to us to embrace and to move forward with it. I think it was very important to realize that it's happened. It's not happening. It's happened. That genie's out the bottle. Yeah. 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 So we, best we you know, get moving with the rest of the world. And at the end of the day, a positive attitude. Richard, I'll give the final word to you. Anything that specifically is still uh, circulating in your brain? Yeah, I think that uh, Nishlin mentioned it. I think one of the big key takeaways for me was the relationship between the US and China, which represents almost 60% of world GDP, is calm and collaborative for now, which is positive for the world. And as I mentioned earlier, the stickiness or the, vol- the potential volatility for inflation is, is there. So there, you know, there are lurking risks, but for now, it's okay. My take on the AI issue is that the genie's out the bottle. Different countries will implement it at different paces. There is still competitiveness around AI. So the US has not given China access to certain of their chips, which allows these large, large language models to exist. So that, you know, the very big generative AI is used for competitive reasons, both in the private space, a global competition amongst companies, and also for nations, for national security. So that may hold up a little bit of how AI gets distributed around the world. And some of the implementations are expensive. Well, we've looked at some stuff here at Investec. I mean, to put a co-pilot on everybody's desk is really expensive. And just because it sounds nice is a very expensive exercise. We've got to, you know, be very careful. But I think uh, one of the things that we've been brought back to our firm is the knowledge of AI needs to be distributed to every single person in the organization. So massive learning and development opportunity for people because where it's going to get executed and implemented is on the desks in the organization. We need to be aligned policy-wise as a company, but the real innovations are going to happen with our people. I suspect we'll be doing a lot of that conversation on uh, future editions of uh, No Ordinary Wednesday. And Richard, those two words that you used, calm and collaborative, uh, long may that last as well. Those are two good words. And that's where we're going to leave it. Investec Bank South Africa Chief Executive Officer Richard Wainwright and Investec Group Finance Director Nishlan Samuj, thank you for joining me on No Ordinary Wednesday. Now, a new episode of No Ordinary Wednesday drops every fortnight. To ensure that you don't miss a show, follow Investec Focus Radio Essay wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the channel, please take a moment to rate it. Until next time, goodbye from me, Jeremy Maggs and the entire Focus Radio team. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendations. Investec Limited and subsidiaries, authorized financial service providers, registered credit providers, and long-term insurer.